characters, if you will, uh, and, um, and a lot of the same themes. Uh, so, Colossians chapter 4, verses 7. We, many of us, if we're honest, when we get to chapter 4, verse 7, and it says, final greetings. And he starts off with, uh, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's my beloved brother. And it goes on. I've sent him to you for this very purpose and encourage you. And, and uh, Aristarchus and all of that. And, and, and if you're honest, I think many of us, when we get to that, we just kind of fly right through it. Any honest people out there ever done that before? Yes. It's like the genealogies. We just get to them and we just fly right through them. But uh, starting in verse 7, I think... What we have is Paul's, obviously Paul's final words. These are his acknowledgments, his farewells. Um, we have something I think very important uh, and that we're going to talk about. Many observations, if you will, from this text. It's going to feel a little bit different than our typical sermon where we tend to go like word by word and kind of break it up. Um, instead, there's more of uh, kind of some themes or observations that I want you guys to see in this text today. Um, the great theme of Colossians, however, has been this idea that we have this new heart, uh, and that this new heart is indeed complete in Christ. For you to take Colossians, I think, and to summarize it up into one phrase, it's we are complete in Christ. It's because we've been given this new heart. Uh, Colossians is not, a, is not a treatment of what we do to earn our salvation, but is instead a treatment of what happens after we've been given salvation. Because we're complete. Because we have this new heart. So, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to look at chapter 1. We're just going to kind of do a quick overview of Colossians and then work into where we're going to be at today. But first of all, chapter 1, you guys can remember back in chapter 1, Paul tells us, who Christ is and what Christ has done. This is what he's thankful for in the Colossian believers. He's thankful for what Christ has done. And all of this is because of who Christ is. And if we understand these things about Christ, we will understand the supremacy of Christ and his person and work. And if we understand who Christ is, this changes everything for us. We were told in chapter 1 that Paul, that, that Christ is the image of the invisible God. And just think of that. That a man is the image of the invisible God. I mean, that in and of itself seems impossible. That both God is invisible and there is now an image of him. And that image is now found in a man. So two big hurdles to overcome. And yet God chose to do that in, in the person of Christ. Paul tells us that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. That all things were created through him. That he holds all things together. And that through Christ God has reconciled all things to himself. If we understand this, it will revolutionize the way we approach the Christian life. We'll say a little more about this later, but... We have an epidemic of wanting, and we hear we, we talk about this all the time. We want a list of put this on, put this off, put this on, put this off, do this, do this, do this. 
And instead, understanding the doctrines and the truth of our God and letting that transform our lives from the inside out. You see, the list takes us from the outside in. Let's fix these actions because fixing the heart is a little harder work. But it's the truths of God, it's the truths of Scripture that transforms us from the inside out. It doesn't mean we can be lazy. I think actually that takes harder work. So we have to sort through those truths and go, well, how do they apply to my life? What does this change about me? What does understanding Christ and his divinity, what does that change about my perception of life? What does it change about my actions? What does it change about my parenting? What does it change about everything? Because I, I believe if we understand his supremacy of Christ, we will understand that he is sufficient for growth in grace, and we will stop looking for cheap tricks to end sin. Let me say that again without stuttering this time. Because we, it will revolutionize our lives because if we understand Christ's supremacy, we will understand that he is sufficient for growth and grace, and we will stop looking for cheap tricks to end sin. Our lives are just surrounded with cheap tricks to end sin. And we find ourselves repeating the same thing two weeks later, three weeks later, maybe two hours later. Because if we're honest, we read through that and go, he's the image of the invisible God, the first one of all creation. All things are created through him. He holds all things together. That's awesome. That's Jesus. What about me? What about me? And maybe even at the core of that question is the problem. Maybe it's not about me. Maybe it's about him. Maybe we're asking the wrong question. What about him? What about him? What about him? And surrendering to him. Hence, in salvation, we are repenting of our ways. And we're placing and turning our faith to him. That's his ways. Making his ways and him Lord of our lives. So maybe the question should be, what about him? And again, I know in our culture we want quick fixes for everything. And it doesn't seem a, like a quick fix to learn about Jesus. Uh, and there's nothing I don't think that I can do to convince you uh, other than just telling you the truth of Scripture is that it's about Him. And Paul makes that very clear. It's about Him. And it's from Him that these actions come forth. This change comes forth. So that's chapter 1. So chapter 2, Paul begins to defend this truth by warning against false teachers. He warns, warns against becoming captive to the very things that we have been set free from. We've been set free from this list of do's and don'ts. We've been set free to live for Christ. That our heart is now no longer entangled in our sin and this law by which we must earn our salvation. 
and such. But instead, we're now free from our sin to live for Christ. The, the law does still serve a purpose. We don't have time to talk about the text. But. So Paul, though, defends us by saying we have this risk of falling captive to the very things that we've been set free. And we're not set free just from doing wrong things, but we're free from teaching that talks about it's the act of doing these things that make you right before God. Because these uh, false teachers at this point, Paul's time, the issue is that, well, if you do these things, then you will earn right standing before God. And Paul's saying, no, 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 you can do nothing to earn your standing before God other than placing your faith in Jesus Christ. He earned your standing before God. He earned our standing before God. So, he warns us also to stop living in the shadows and instead live in the substance of Christ. Stop living in these things that only somewhat represent Christ. These laws, these things. It's not that we just disregard them because there is value in learning from them, but we are not bound in those. We are now bound in Christ. And our standing before God is earned because of Jesus and His work on the cross. To stop settling, and the thing for us would be to stop settling for a good life and have your best life now. Don't go by the book. Alright? But stop settling seriously for a good life and have your best life now. A life that is a slave to Christ our Lord. A life that is dead to your short-sighted plans, your selfish desires, your wealth and ambition. And instead alive to Christ's eternal plans, His exalting and also exalting His desires. And alive, get this, Paul talks about alive to the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, and whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's what we're alive to. That's our best life now. Chapter 3 through chapter 4, verse 6, he applies the truth that's this new heart, this, this theme of this new life that's complete in Christ. He applies this truth to believers in five different areas of our existence. One is our hearts, our personal relationships with God, our homes and our family life. He applies it to our work or our vocation, our commitments, and he applies it to our relationship with outsiders. What does this look like? This new heart, new life. What does that look like in relation to these five areas? Hearts, relationship with God, home and family, work, vocation, our relationship with outsiders. And remember, it is always easier to understand and apply what Paul says in the first half of his books than it is in the latter half on a typical basis because what's happening is in the first half of his books, Paul's giving doctrines. He's giving truths about God. And in the latter half, he's giving application. And so it's easier for us to settle in on the last half of that book and go, okay, now we can get down to business. Here's the things that I need to do. And again, very quickly, we lose 
sight of what we're here for, of why we're doing these things. It's because of our now changed heart in Christ. I say this at the risk of creating some lazy people, but I really do believe, and you can take this too far, okay, so I'm going to try and say it without giving a bunch of caveats and disclaimers, but I really do believe that if you having been given a new heart, if you feed that heart the Word of God, and through that heart you pray to God to feed that heart, to give you affections for the truths that are His alone, the rest of your life will be changed. That we don't have to sit there and go through this list Every week, if I'm going to work on this and this and this and this and this, and again, I, I know that some of you are going to take that too far and you'll become lethargic and lazy. Please don't. Because it's hard work to surrender your heart every day to the will of the Father. That's hard. It's easy to take a list and say, I, I told Sarah this week, we got to park with Chapman and I said uh, I was joking but I said I've been praying for patience and all God keeps giving me is opportunities to fail uh, I was frustrated uh, I wish he'd just give me patience that's what I'm asking for not opportunity I was I was totally joking I, I don't, I'm not struggling with patience at least I don't think so at this point But uh, it was just we're just kind of joking and I really think guys I really believe that that's the picture we get in Colossians that we have this new heart that is now it's been transformed by God. In its surrender, it is prone to do what God wants. And it's, when it's not surrendered, it's prone to do what it wants. And so in daily feeding that, the right nutrients, the Word of God, and in living that Word in communion with God through prayer and talking with God, you feed that heart now that heart, because God has taken residence in your heart, that heart now begins to birth these things that are true of a follower of Jesus. And we're not stuck to these lists and this just simply legalistic actions. It's legalism, control of our lives and that. And, and again, don't take that too far. So... Paul applies these to our lives and what they should look like because of this heart that's been transformed by God. Then we, that takes us all the way to chapter 4, verses 7 to the end. And now we get into Paul's epilogue, if you will, his closing, his final statements for the church in Colossae. And I think what we have here is we have a revealing of some truths about Paul's heart. Some things that is important, some things that are important to Paul's heart. We see his concern for the church at Colossae. We, we see the personal references, I think, tell you that this church is more to Paul than simply a group of people. He's referring to people by name. It was funny, I was listening to another preacher preach on this. and uh, Actually, it was, it was Matt Chandler who lives in Dallas, Texas. Uh, and he was referring to, you know, Paul... When someone does something wrong, he calls them or does something well, both, both wrong and well. He, he calls them out by name. And he's referring to how he calls out other preachers 
often by name, particularly one that's in Houston, Texas, calls him out by name and gets reamed for it often. Uh, when we see Paul is calling out false teachers uh, and uh, and does it for the protection of the church. Uh, Paul, I think, is greatly concerned about the church of Colossae. And I understand this, Paul has not even necessarily, he's not, at this, at this point, even met the church of Colossae. But he knows of people he knows of what God is doing through those people. He knows how God is changing their hearts. So Paul has this great concern. He speaks of individual people. He gives individual words of encouragement, instruction, and admonition. Paul is concerned about the people in this congregation. And when you look at this passage, you may be tempted, again, to look at it as a list of names. And it's much more than just a list of names. This passage is rich. So um, just hang with me, okay, as we work through this. Uh, let me give you a few things that we're not even going to have time to get to today that I want to encourage you to look at this passage and dive into these this week. For instance, one thing that we don't have time to look at today is the implications for the doctrine of the communion of the saints. So what does it look like for us to be in communion together as a body? And there's, there's implications in this text for that. For example, Paul calls Onesimus, who is the slave, right? He calls him a faithful and beloved brother. And Paul says that he is one of their number. Like he is one of them. But think about this. Paul, what's Paul doing? He's returning. We find this later in Philemon. Paul returns this runaway slave to his master in the congregation at Colossae. Paul, think about this. Paul is currently being accompanied by a runaway slave. But yet the Apostle Paul calls this slave his beloved brother, friend, and fellow servant of the Lord. Think about the implications for us. That Paul is standing there. This is fellow, this is a slave. What does it say about our communion as saints and our fellowship together? I mean, think of the faith. Think of think of think of this. The faith and beloved brother who is a runaway slave. That he, think of how he sends the slave back to the congregation and says, he is one of you. Think about this. What Paul is saying in this culture, he is one of you. This person who is a slave to your church member, Philemon, he is one of you. It would have been, that was incredibly counter-cultural. Maybe a, a modern-day example would be a prostitute who has a drug addict who just met Jesus, like just yesterday, met Christ, life transformed, Paul says. And still struggles and still paying the consequences of her actions or his actions. And still addicted to drugs. And Paul says, he is one of you. He is one of us. Now the difference is, the only obvious sin that the slave has done is that he has ran away from his master. So the act of being a slave was not sinful, like in my example. 
Paul says he is one of us. That prostitute is one of us. Think of the prestigious people again. Philemon. Who's a wealthy enough to own a slave. And Paul says that a slave is one of you. I mean, think about this with us. It doesn't matter what walk of life you come from. We have a unity of mission, a unity of salvation. We have a communion at a level which we can have communion with no other person on this earth. The body of Christ can have, should have, a communion that is unlike nothing seen on this planet. And yet I was having a conversation with an unbeliever last night in how churches look very, there's very little difference between that community and the way communities are represented outside of the church. I wonder, just this brief thought, I wonder if we did have that kind of communion that we could have, if more people would be knocking on the doors. Just, just, just a thought. I don't know. I was told by someone, I'm going to give you another thought, sorry, uh, Robert Charles, someone, someone told me not to, uh, they were reflecting on how we're doing everything wrong to bring new people into the church. Uh, and and, and I, yes, we are, um, as far as our cultural standards of what it means to grow a church. Um, we, uh, you know, we preach too long, uh, we talk about sin too much, uh, we talk about uh, spurring each other on to the cross too much, and uh, we don't talk about uh, wealth and prosperity, um, except for wealth and prosperity in the gospel. Uh, and uh, so, but I just, I wonder though, even in the midst of that, if we had a communion, a, a relationship, a community, that was where it could and should be, if that we had a hospitality about us that was undeniably gospel. What would that change? So, the next thing that we're not going to have time to get to today, even though I just took 10 minutes to do the last one, is uh, the beautiful prayer thing that, that uh, Epaphras says, uh, and Paul records for us in verse 12. If you look at verse 12, it says, Epaphras, or Epaphras, who is one of you, a Servant of Lord Jesus, greet you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. Uh, John Calvin says that this is a good pastor's prayer. Uh, it's a good prayer for us to pray. He tells, Paul tells us that uh, Epaphras has not forgotten the congregation. In fact, Epaphras struggles or wrestles in prayer for you guys daily. And he prays that you would be perfect in Christ, that you would be complete in Christ, that they should be assured and fulfilled in the will of God. It's interesting, Paul prays the same way at the beginning of Colossians. And he repeats and talks about his brother doing, uh, his brother Epaphras doing a similar thing. The last thing that we don't have time to get to today, and again, I want to encourage you to go look at these this week. The last one is um, the sad warning that Paul gives in verse 14. One word. Demas. We might here know the history of Demas and what happens to Demas. Anybody? 
Right. Go look at Demas. Go read later on. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and read about Demas. Write that down. Don't look at it and I'll go later. But Demas, at this point, if we know what happens at the end of the story, is a word of warning. Demas is mentioned here with Luke and again in Philemon, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks. Demas and Luke are mentioned as ongoing, faithful servants of the Lord. Okay? Paul mentions them as ongoing, faithful servants of the Lord. And then unfortunately, the last word we hear about Demas in 2 Timothy chapter 4 is that he has fallen from the faith. That he has given in to his love for the world. Just a question. Could Demas have been riding on the coattails of the more mature Luke? Could he have been living off of Luke's maturity? It depended on Luke too much for his own spiritual maturity and growth and grace instead of taking a personal reason? I'm just speculating. Then when the challenge came, he found how empty his commitment to Christ was and he fell away. I, I don't know. Speculation, but we know that the Bible says that he fell away. I, I don't want to go down the path of whether lose your salvation or not, but here's a man who spent great time with Paul himself, and it's recorded later that he chose his love for the world. I think the warning for us, I mean, we think about this, Demas was hearing the revelation of God firsthand from Paul. He was making sacrifices for the gospel. He was aiding in the mission of Christ. I mean, Demas was with Paul who was in prison. And this is the result of Demas. I think the warning to us, the very mention of his name, reminds us that we must take care to make our calling and election sure. We must take very careful thought, consideration, work hard at our salvation. Not burning our salvation. But it is hard work. And again, if you couple that with what I said earlier, where's the hard work at? Doing all the right actions? No. The hard work is at feeding that heart of yours the truth of God. And submitting your heart to Him. That's the hard work. And I think that's harder than what most of us probably would realize. So, those are what we're not going to have time to talk about. What we do have time to talk about, very little now, but is some things about the character of the Apostle Paul. Some things about Paul that we can learn, and these characteristics of Paul are things that should be true of each one of us. These are not the super Apostle Paul, and that's how he lived, and then now there's all of us commoners and how we live. Like, we can never measure up. No, these are things that are true. Paul, I even hesitate to say this because even this needs a disclaimer. Paul is not Jesus. All right, so you can't even use the excuse of, well, that's Jesus, and he just got it right every time anyway. So, of course, we can talk about that, the humanity of Christ, and uh, don't have time to go there, but Paul, at least, we can't say that about him. We can't say, okay, well, that's Paul, and, uh, and you know, he, he couldn't sin. No, Paul could sin, and Paul did sin. And these are characteristics that are true of Paul that should be true of us. We see in this passage, I think, that Paul has a great capacity. Here's a few things. 
He has a great capacity for people, for shared ministry, for supporting his co-workers, co-workers in the gospel, that is, and for single-mindedness in his spiritual lives. Those are the things that, that Paul and we're going to look at. So the first point is this. I know you don't have, it's going to take, you have to write more because you don't have the fill in the blanks, but it's okay. You can labor a little harder today uh, and write out the whole sentence. But the first thing is this. Paul had a changed heart, or the changed heart has a genuine concern for people. Paul had a genuine concern for people. Now, let, let me let me give you my my. Judgment, if you will, my uh, of of our church. We have great lessons to learn from Paul and his concern for other people. All of us. So Paul, moving through this, Paul not only remembers the names of these people, but he is genuinely concerned with them. He is genuinely concerned about these people's well-being. Notice, notice with me, why is Paul sending Tychicus and Onesimus? Look at Colossians 4, verse 8. It says, I sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your heart. He is sending them so that the church may know about their situation. So he's sending Epaphras and Onesimus so that the church in Colossae would learn about Paul's situation. Paul wants to tell them something about what is going on with him because he knows that the church in Colossae is concerned about him. Paul knows that these people are desperately interested in what his condition is. Are you going to trial? Will you be put to death? It's not for selfish reasons that Paul is informing or wants to convey the situation to the Colossians. It was because he was concerned for them. And he knew that they were concerned about him. Let me just ask a question. Do your actions and the words from your mouth show concern for other people? Do they? Can you point back to a situation very recently where you consciously chose to put the other person before you in speech in action where you showed great concern, where that person would have walked away feeling like that person cares about me. Do you guard the words that come out of your mouth even in texting, even in emailing, even though both of those are terrible for communicating concern, uh, but in everything that comes from it, are you concerned at how it's going to impact the other person? Are you? Paul's concerned about these people in more than just speech and text and writing. Paul's concerned. Notice Paul's, again, further his concern here. Paul has spoken of the great truths about Christ. Can we get the context here? He's spoken of these great truths about Christ. Now, Paul is going to inform them of some practical, situational information. 
And Paul knew, though, how to talk about the great truths of Scripture and those things that concern us as human beings created in the image of God. These were great truths coupled with these very practical things that concern the people of God, like the livelihood of Paul and how he was doing it. So it's not just all this grandiose, theoretical, doctrinal truths devoid of anything that is on our level practically, but instead it's, it's a both. Here we have these great truths of Scripture and Paul's concern. Just simply, I mean, think about this. Of all the things that Paul could write about, the supremacy of Christ, and then over here he's worried about telling them about his imprisonment. So that makes like all of God's truth is here. And, and, and of all the things, God, he says, this is Christ. And this is how I am in prison. Because I care. Because it's all important. Paul has a concern. We can't overlook Paul's concern. These people, our culture fights against this. We live in a selfish, selfishly motivated culture where it doesn't matter what I say. I'm just, where we live in a culture where just getting it out, and that's all that matters, right? Like you, you know, you know that feeling I'm talking about. Wow, someone is upset. Woo! Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm actually preaching too loud or something. Uh, no, what happens is uh, our culture, it, it, uh, it's better to say what you need to say again. You know what song that is? Say what you need to say. Okay, I did. It's terrible. Sorry. Is that like a John Mayer song? Yes. Yeah, all right. There we go. Yeah. John Mayer. Okay. It's better to say too much. Uh, than never to say what you need to say again. I don't know that those are wise words. Um, <laughs> how about this? It's best to say what God would want you to say in everything. And it's best to say it how God would want you to say it in everything. Why? Because of our concern for others. Because it displays gospel concern. Because Paul models it for us. Notice also in verse 8 that he sent them, uh, this servant Tychicus, because he wants to comfort and strengthen them. Look at verse 8. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may what? Encourage your hearts. Encourage your hearts. Now, coming from someone who's not that good at encouragement, uh, at least that's my uh, judgment of myself, I don't think I'm that good at encouragement, there's some lessons to learn there. Sometimes we just need to spend time with people just simply to encourage them with no other agenda. Um, I learned that from a, a, a wise other person over this past couple weeks. Just time to just encourage their hearts. And that be, if you will, the agenda. Paul is concerned with their encouragement, with their hearts. Uh, Paul's not only concerned about his condition, but their hearts. Think of this. Paul, think of this. Paul, in his bondage, 
is desiring to encourage those who were free. Think about that for a moment. Paul, who's in bondage, who's in slavery, not slavery, but who's in chains, who could be put to death any moment. And what's his concern? It's the encouragement of those who are not living in chains. Again, does that take us back to a differing view on freedom? Paul's free. And he wanted them to continue experiencing the same thing. For Paul, there was no difference between the two of them as far as their life in Christ. And there shouldn't have been any difference. They were both free. And Paul wanted to encourage their hearts. So the question, do we have the same kind of concern for people? Is our fellowship as a church characterized by that type of mutual concern for one another? When that person is carrying something that they're obviously struggling with, do we have concern to go help them with it? When a person is carrying something in the door that is too heavy or that they need the door open, do we have concern for that? The words that come out of our mouth, do they show concern to encourage or to tear down? When we request things of people, does, is it for their good and to encourage them or is it to tear them down? When people walk into our homes, are we concerned about encouraging them and about where they're at in life, or are we only concerned about that menial task that we need to go do across the room in that moment? What is our concern? Again, I can give you a list of ways to be hospitable. (laughs) Or, I can tell you that Paul shows us that even in his chains... His concern is for those who are not in chains and tell you to do likewise. Paul was in chains. He was concerned about other people who were not in chains. Even even in telling them about where he was at. I mean, think about this. So this is our person who's leading us, who who has started the church and and who has brought us the gospel and and is leading us, giving us truths from God and and we love this man. And and now he's in chains. He could be put to death. Do you think that the church in Colossae might get discouraged about their leader being put to death for the very thing that they are trying to hold tight of? Absolutely. Absolutely. What does Paul do? So even in telling them why and how he's doing, I mean, not why, but how he's doing, his concern is not for himself. His concern is for them. They would not get discouraged. That they would be encouraged. That they would let this strengthen them. That they would grow in the full assurance of the faith. Paul... uh, I think this place for us hospitality in a way um, that's grand. He's in chains. And my greater concern is not his shackles, but it's that church. It's those individual people that he was most concerned about. Next characteristic of Paul that we see in this passage is that, that, that the changed heart takes its ministry seriously and involves others in it. Paul willingly shares his 
ministry. He acknowledges those who work with him. Think about it, verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. But he is the one that will, will, take, will bring forth this news. He is the one that will share with you. He is the one that will take part in what God is doing here. Colossians 4 verse 11. And Jesus, who is called Justice. So it's not Jesus died on the cross, right? This is a different Jesus. He's called Justice. Uh, those are the only men, he says, um, of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. If you look back before, just to give you context, look back at verse 10. It says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among the fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort. We're going to a few comments in just a moment on these are the only men of the circumcision. But for right now, they have been a comfort to me. Paul is no lone ranger. Paul's no lone ranger. If there was anyone other than Jesus that could have been a lone ranger, like it was Paul, right? Like he could have done a ministry by himself, could have done life. By, I mean, he, for goodness sakes, like he, he knew the Old Testament very well. And God's like revealing truths like straight to his heart to be downloaded onto a text and written on scrolls. And, but Paul has people around him. He, he is no lone ranger. He, obviously he's gifted above ordinary, but notice that this ministry is to be a corporate, or that his ministry is to be a corporate minister, meaning that he is ministering with other people around him. Yes, he was gifted and probably could have done it. But he's not off on his own. He's willing to share that ministry with other people. But let me say this. Isn't it our tendency uh, to want to do things our way? Anybody got that tendency? <laughs> yeah, I, I've got it. All right. Yeah. All right. All the sinners in that. Okay. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, I have that tendency to want to do things my way. <laughs> you know what struggles when when you're kind of the... Uh, one of the leaders, you have to really guard that because you could make everything go your way. And you have to realize that it's not about everything going your way. Um, so let me encourage you, don't, uh, like, our tendency is to, like, protect our turf, if you will. Like, protect, this is, this is our ministry, this is my ministry, this is, this is my instrument I play, or this is my program that I am in charge of, or this is my mentoring group that I'm in charge of, this is my Bible study I'm in charge of, and, and we, we have the tendency to want to protect that in an unhealthy way. You know, when you have something you do well for God, you want to protect it from anything else, but... Let me, um, let me just say this. Um, make sure in your heart that you, your heart is sold out to God's vision. And that's the vision to reconcile all things to Himself. To reconcile men to Himself. Don't be sold out to your ministry. Because when your ministry changes, your motivation will be tested. 
Okay? So if there is no longer a need for your ministry, if you're sold out to that ministry, you will be in a very bad spot. But if you're sold out to God's vision to reconcile all things to Himself, then when that ministry changes or evolves or you begin to serve in a different capacity, now you find yourself where your motivation is tested and you come out on the right side of things. Because now it doesn't matter what you're doing, right? I mean, as long as you're in your giftedness and where God has called you to be at, and even that I, I say with hesitancy, but you're where God wants you and, and you're serving the, and the gift sets that God's given you, or the gift set that God has given you. But your purpose, or your motivation is to fulfill this vision. How does this fit into that? Does that make sense? So no longer, it's not about me, 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 and what I get to do, but it's, it's more about that getting accomplished and me doing whatever it takes to get that accomplished. It's a big difference between those two. So let me caution you. Paul, Paul was not trying to protect his turf. He was concerned that the vision would take place, that men would be reconciled to God, and it didn't matter how he did that. It was, so Paul, even though he probably could have done this much better by himself, I mean, think about it. It's Paul. Paul could have delivered this. Now, obviously, he was in chains, but he could have waited. He could have waited until he got out of shackles and said, I'm going to go down and, and, uh, and tell this to the people because I could do a better job of saying it myself. That's my ministry, the church in Colossae. That's my ministry. No, 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 no. It's God's ministry. And I get to be a part of God's ministry. And I'm going to send these people to be a part of it as well. So, Next thing we learn about Paul is that the changed heart always appreciates and supports its co-workers. Notice how Paul is sincere in his compliments for those who are working with him in the gospel. Look at verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. He speaks of Tychicus as his beloved brother and gives him these grand truths, uh, uh, compliments, if you will, and encouragement about Tychicus. Then verse 12 says, Epaphras, this is one, he, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling for your behalf, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. Speaking of, of uh, Epaphras, he says that Epaphras is a bond slave of Christ. Second phrase there, he is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus. Think about that. Would someone who knew you well, Say that you're a servant of Christ Jesus. Would that be the phrase they would choose to say about you? Paul says it about Epaphras. Faithful servant of the Lord. Verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Paul, Paul even mentions his doctor, right? Uh, he's a beloved friend and doctor. Then verse 10 Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And verse 13, look, he says, For I bear him witness, and he 
has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Areopolis. He tells the congregation to welcome Mark. I want you to know about how deeply concerned Epaphras is for you. Paul says, I want you to welcome this young pastor, Mark, and I want you to know what a faithful man and how deeply concerned for you Epaphras is. These men are worthy of your esteem. This is what he says to the church in Colossae. These men are worthy of your esteem. Paul doesn't have to hoard the glory for himself. These men, look at these. They're faithful to God. And I'm sending them to you. Do we encourage other people in this way? You don't have to be a, in Paul's shoes as a pastor or apostle to, to be asked this question. Do, do you encourage your spouse in this way? Do you compliment your family members in this way? Maybe the first question is, can you? And, and men, if, if you say, well, I don't know if I can, I, look, look, you're the one that should be leading. And I'm sure there's plenty of other things that can be complimented and encouraged. Are you encouraging people? Are words of appreciation and encouragement found coming from our mouths frequently? That's the question. It did from Paul's. Lastly, the changed heart is single-minded in its spiritual focus. The changed heart is single-minded in its spiritual focus. Paul, again, is a great example of this. Paul never lets up on the theme. This letter, Paul begins in 1-2 talking about this loyalty to Christ, the faithfulness to Christ. That's where he kind of begins, and Paul is right back at this. He's right back at this faithfulness and loyalty to Christ. It's a theme of this letter, and it continues to be mentioned in the epilogue. Let me give you an example. Let me ask you a question. When it comes to what Paul has just gotten done saying about these men, what comes to mind? The fact that these guys are faithful, dedicated, committed to the gospel. Again, showing Paul's singleness and his devotion to that. Look at verse 7 again. Tychicus will tell you all about my activity. He's a beloved and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. He says that Tychicus is faithful and loyal. Is that something that can be said of you, of me? Verse 9, and with, one, and with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. Onesimus, he's a faithful brother. Verse 11, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have a comfort to me, or have been a comfort to me. Mark and Justice, they have been a... Loyal, even when others have not. Verse 13, For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Areopolis. Epaphras is loyal to the flock, praying for them continually. So Paul, Paul highlights the loyalty of these people. 
I think it represents the single-mindedness of these people to be about the gospel, to be concerned with the gospel, to be committed to the gospel, to be committed to Christ. Paul always sought to promote loyalty to Christ among the congregations that he served. There's a loyalty, a commitment of those things which we know very little of today in our culture today. It's always, what's the exception clause to the contract? It's always, how much is it going to cost me to get out of this if I don't want to do it anymore? It's always, you know, let me, let me see the prenup. We know very little of this loyalty commitment thing today. The caution to you would be, in that context, to be very careful and watchful is the culture dictating my actions or is God's word dictating my is my changed heart dictating my actions so question for you do you, do you do we do I have a single mindedness for God would the people around you describe you in this way would those people who know you the most would they say that you have a single mindedness for the things of God Almost you know, like blinders. Is that where you're at? <clears throat> you know, when Paul compliments these workers, he compliments their loyalty to Christ. Last few things I want to mention is that Paul says to remember his chains, remember his bonds. Why would Paul do this? If you look there at the end, Paul says, remember his chains, remember his... Why would Paul... Not to gain sympathy... Paul wanted people, I, I believe that we see in the text, Paul wanted people to remember who he was imprisoned for. Jesus. He was imprisoned for Jesus, his master. He was not the prisoner of Caesar. He was not the prisoner of Rome. He was the prisoner of Christ. He wanted them to remember the message and the master who had put him in that prison. What is your view of freedom? I think ours is very messed up. And instead of living in the freedom of Christ, we live in the, in the bondage the continued bondage of that which we've been set free from, namely our sin. We've been set free from that. We still live in bondage to it. We've been set free to live this life in Christ. We've been set free because we have a new heart that is desireful of the things of God in an increasing measure. We've been set free for that. And Paul, Paul is concerned here it's not that he's a prisoner of Rome, but that he is a prisoner of Christ. He is a slave to Christ. He wanted them, I think, to cling to the truth of that message and always be loyal to the Master who had given them that message. Are you loyal to that Master? Are you faithful to our Master? Are you loyal to Him? Are you concerned with His message going forth? Are you? Think about that.
your heart and submission to Him for that. There's a famous picture um, that Rembrandt painted of Paul in prison. Uh, in this picture, if you look, you will notice that Paul is in a jail cell. There you go. You'll notice that Paul is in a jail cell and that there is a window from the outside. And if you look closely, you will notice that there are bars in this window. Yet there is no shadow of those bars reflected on Paul. Rembrandt's symbolism is that though Paul was in prison in the flesh, he had indeed been set free by the grace of Christ. Remember our talk about slavery and that there being a different kind of freedom? Though he was a prisoner of Rome, yet he was a prisoner of no one. Christ had set him free. He says, remember my bonds. Paul was a man set free, and he desired the Colossians to be free as God desires us to be set free, and that only happens in Christ. Only. Not in our right actions, not in our checklist, in our legalism, but in this heart that is consistently being beaten that is consistently being angled towards God. This heart that is growing, should be growing in its love for our Creator. That heart's been set free. I'm sorry, I said that our beating our hearts, we're beating our flesh because our heart has been turned towards God. Is that where you're at? Do you, do you live in the freedom of your faith. Do you? Do you live in the freedom of your faith in Christ? Do you live in the freedom of this new heart? Or are you bound still by chains? Paul set free. Paul had a concern for other people as we see in his character. Paul had a concern for sharing the ministry and encouraging his co-laborers in the ministry? Does that characterize our body? I think we have some work to do there. So what I want to do is we're going to sing one more song today. And I, I want to encourage you in these next few moments, if you don't sing a word, that's okay. Spend time talking with God. I want you to ask Him some questions. One question I want you to ask Him, where, where is your heart at in submission to Him? Are you submitted to Christ? Are you or are you struggling with that daily? And I want you to ask God specifically, how are you in your relationship to other people, particularly in the church? Is your relationship encouraging? Is it bringing the gospel out of people, like in a good way? Is that what your relationship with them does? Or does it bring the sin out of their life? in a bad way. Paul had a concern for others that even while he was in chains, he cared most about them. So those two things, where are you at with God in your heart submitting to Him on a general basis? And secondly, where are you at in your relationship to other people in the body? Is it one that reflects Paul's characteristics here? So let's pray. 
Uh, we'll sing the song and then we'll be dismissed in a few moments. Father, uh, 